0: Okay, now that you're comfortable in your seats, stand back up again. There's a passage of scripture which as a child for me, um, my parents' church um, recited every time we had service together. What I would like you to see is just a portion of it up on the screen. It's probably gonna be very familiar to you. What I'd like you to do is say it along with me. So Matthew 6, 9 goes like this. Pray then in this way, our Father, Who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Would you take a minute and pray with me? Father, we come before you as men and women, students, children, who proclaim your name is holy. We're not afraid to admit that. Jesus instructed us to say that right on the front end. So here we are, ushered into Your kingdom, right before Your throne. The prayers that we're uttering right now, Father, we believe are ascending before You. And we proclaim You are holy and just and righteous and true. Father, secondly, we were told to say that we want Your kingdom to come. So as we study this book of Revelation, help us to understand what that means. We want your kingdom to come. So Father, give us the eyes necessary to see what you're trying to say to us this morning. The ears to hear. And give us a heart willing to accept and translate that into action for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go ahead and have a seat. We've discovered that there's three really significant purposes um, in the midst of our 16th week now in studying the book of Revelation. Three really significant purposes in the tribulation period. First one was to see that God's going to use the tribulation to cause a worldwide revival, getting people to turn back to him because of all the destruction that's taking place on planet Earth. People are going to turn their hearts towards God. God. The second one we see is that it's going to bring an end to evil behavior. It's going to wipe out evil actions upon the earth by the end of the tribulation. The third one is a really big one also. It's to break the will of the holy people, meaning the Jewish people who have rejected Jesus Christ. So those three big ones, worldwide repentance, causing people to turn to God. And then God bringing an end to evil. And third one, to bring the Jewish people in line with his purposes and will. So we've discovered now six seals being opened. This scroll that we talked about in those first couple weeks that Jesus is holding in his hand. And with each seal, a new judgment coming about on the earth. So as each seal is broken, anybody remember what the first seal is? Nobody could remember in the first service either, which greatly discourages me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, we'll go with uh, uh, false peace. So when we saw Rami raises her hand, so you got it, Rami, excellent, okay. Um, False peace, which ushered in the Antichrist. So with the seal that was broken, there were different actions that took place. Remember, we saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse arrive. So with the first seal, we get the false peace, which ushers in the arrival of the guy with the mark of the beast, 666. Second one was worldwide war because the false peace doesn't last very long. Third one is famine as a result of the worldwide war. The fourth one is mass death. 1.5 billion people on the surface of the earth of the 6 billion who live right now if it were to happen in the next number of years. So Scripture says a quarter of the world's population. The uh, fifth one, it were the martyrs crying out in front of the altar. Remember that? How long, O Lord? before you bring vengeance on those who took our lives. That was the fifth seal. So they're crying for vengeance. And the sixth one we saw a couple weeks ago, when the sky on the planet went black and a massive earthquake shook the surface of the earth. One of three huge earthquakes in the end times during the tribulation. And this first one shook the earth so much that people ran for caves. But scripture says that the mountains shook so much that the mountains collapsed and the islands fled away and were no more. So in that sixth seal, you see great destruction. It's best to understand these seven seals, the seventh one you're going to see today, as occurring in a sequence of events that usher in the next series of judgments. So we have the seal's judgment, the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. I want you to really get a handle on this, so I put together just this little graph for you to help you understand the way this works. It's called a telescopic view, meaning that as each one unfolds, it allows the next one, series, to unfold. So we've got seal one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven, in and of itself, opens up the next series, the trumpet judgments, which are far worse than the seal judgments. And on the seventh trumpet judgment opens up the bowl judgments, which you can't possibly imagine things to get any worse, but they do. It increases. You'll discover in a couple weeks that God in the fifth trumpet judgment unleashes demons from the abyss of hell to cover the surface of the earth. But these first four trumpet judgments we're going to look at today are acts against nature. And that's where we're going to go. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1, you'll be where I'm at this morning. I'm going to ask you to put on your uh, Hebrew and Greek thinking caps because I'm going to teach you a couple words right here on the front end. Now to be a good student of Hebrew, you've got to say it like the Hebrews would say it. The ancients would have said it. So I'm going to ask you to say this first word with me. But I've got to explain to you how they would have said it, okay? Imagine that you're getting ready to spit, okay? I know it's kind of gross, but hock saw is the way this is said, okay? So it comes from your stomach, and they're very literal people, so it comes from your stomach in the back of your throat. Just apologize to the person in front of you if something happens, okay? So I want you to say this with me, alright, so you really get a feel for it. So let's say it together. Hock saw. Saw, okay, look at the definition for it. You wouldn't think such a graphic word would have such a quiet definition. Hold your peace or hold your tongue. Keep silent. Be silent. So it's what parents said to the kids in the car this morning. Hawk, saw, be quiet. I want some peace. It's what the house is like before kids wake up. Hawk saw silence okay you got that down so let me show you how it's used first in the old testament in habakkuk 220, one of the old prophets said this the lord is in his holy temple let all the earth be hock saw before him next one comes from zephaniah another prophet zephaniah 1 7 be hock saw before the lord god for the day of the lord is near So we understand that God's arrival to be near. The old prophets saw it. And they said in response to that, quiet. Haksa. Nothing uttered. So that's the Hebrew version. Here's the Greek, segei. And this is the way you're going to see it used today. They mean the exact same thing. Segei means hush, shh, the absence of all noise. So what we find here in 8.1 is something that's never happened before. You remember, up to this point, there's been a lot of noise in heaven, a lot of praise in God. But look what John says in Revelation 8.1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence, sigay, in heaven for about half an hour. So profound is God's movement against His creation. It causes hoxah. Nothing. There's no four creatures before the throne saying, Holy, holy, holy. There aren't millions of angels standing and saying, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And those standing around the throne who have been redeemed aren't praising him. Everybody is. I's quiet, I wonder if at that this moment, because John's the observer, if he 's looking around just to see if anybody's whispering at all, nothing absolute quiet, so God has the full attention of every spiritual being at this point. This is the eye of the storm that we talked about last time, absolute quiet, the destruction is about to be unleashed. The Old Testament sees silence in four very specific ways that I want you to see this morning. You'll see it up on the screen in three specific ways. The first one is it's an anticipation of God's imminent action. So this anticipation comes about when God was about to do something magnificent. You see it in Exodus 14, when the Israelites were surrounded and they didn't know what to do. And God said, be silent be before me and I will come to your aid. The second one that we see is the natural response to God's omnipotence. The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be before him. It's awe. And the third one that they always associated it with is a fearsome awe in light of his judgment. The things that he's going to bring to pass. Considering the previous events that we've seen leading up to this, this has got to just startle John. And each of us as we look at this, All the praise that takes place up to this point is noisy, loud. And now it's completely silent. In the biblical history of the world, you can count on one hand the times of extreme jubilation and the times of extreme silence. The first one, at creation. Scripture tells us that all the angels in heaven rejoiced jubilation over the creation that God was bringing about. They exulted. The second one, profound silence when God destroyed the earth with a flood. One ship all by itself. Complete quiet. Another time that God brought about judgment was when he brought about judgment against the Egyptians. Scripture tells us that it was so silent before his judgment that not even a dog barked profound silence and then you see jubilation again when jesus arrives think of the jubilation of the angels rejoicing they came before the shepherds and said this is a cause for celebration not a cause for judgment and a fifth time of jubilation versus silence when jesus ascended into heaven you think the angels celebrated when one sinner repents and turns back to god Think of the celebration when Jesus ascended back to the throne and sat down at the right hand of God. There's a cause for celebration. So we see this balance between silence and jubilation. But this event that's taking place here is a moment unlike any other that's ever existed in time. This is in heaven, and it's profound because of what God is about to do. So let's look at verse 2 while we think of that. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? They get to stand before God. What did Gabriel say to Zechariah when he came to him and announced, you're going to be a father in your old age, and you're going to name your son John. Gabriel walked up, appeared before Zechariah. He's in the temple making an offering, and he said to him, behold, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. One of the archangels. Daniel saw the same appearance with Michael. Michael, the one who stands in the presence of God. So you find these archangels, probably Michael and Gabriel being two of the seven here. They're always prepared, always obedient, always available. And they've been given, according to John, seven trumpets. What's the significance of that? The ancients understood that when you have trumpets associated with judgment, something very significant was going to happen. So let me show you up on the screen. You'll see four very specific reasons why this happened. First of all, they called the people together as to gather the people. The second one was to announce war, to let people know, hey, get ready, you're going to battle. A third one was for very special times, for times of celebration jubilation, And this isn't a trumpet like we think of today with valves on it. This is a very long instrument, a solid piece of metal. It had a beautiful tone to it. And this is specifically the word that's used here because the fourth use of it was to announce disaster. You see Amos writing about it in the Old Testament, announcing the disaster that's about to come upon the people of Israel. A trumpet was blown in the city. So the sounding of these seven trumpets announces a declaration of war. God going to war against his creation. Look with me at verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angels' hands." I think God has something really significant to show us here this morning. Have you asked yourself in the 16 weeks as we've been going through this, what's my role in this? What part do I play? Other than I get downloaded with all this information. What's my action? To help you understand that, I need you to understand what's going on in this verse. First of all, a censer is like a firepan. If someone would go to their fireplace and would clean out the hot coals and put it in a pan or a bucket and carry it outside and dump it, that's an image of a censer. So in the Old Testament, when the temple was built, and before that, the tabernacle, an individual serving in priestly duty would take a firepan, a censer, and would go to the altar outside the temple where there was a monster development of a, a, a a flat place, an altar where they could build a fire on it and these coals would heap up. And the individual, the priest's responsibility was to take the censer, dip into the hot coals and carry it inside the temple where when he arrived, he would dump out the hot coals to keep this fire going before God on which they burned incense. Why incense? Exodus tells us that incense is very precious to God, because it was a picture of the rising of prayers before God. So the individuals in the Old Testament understood that when incense was going up before God, they could get a visual image of their prayers ascending before the throne of God, just like your prayers do today. They had the incense to remind them. What a powerful picture when you understand where those prayers are at. Look what it says. The prayers of all the saints are before the throne. Your prayer, every time you utter it in faithful obedience to God, when you're looking for His will, ascends to Him as a fragrant incense. So that's what you see this angel doing, and He's adding incense to it. What were they praying just before this? We saw in Revelation chapter 6 they were crying out for vengeance. We, ourselves, have been praying a specific prayer for many years that is yet to be fulfilled. It's a prayer that I believe Noah prayed. I know King David prayed it. I know the apostles prayed it because they were taught to. When Jesus said, when you pray, pray in this fashion. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come what does it mean for Jesus kingdom to come it means that these kind of things have to take place in order for God to restore order for his kingdom to come he's got to carry out the acts of revelation he's got to carry out this tribulation period of time so Jesus specifically said this in Luke 12, 49. Look with me up on the screen. I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Jesus was speaking while he was living here on earth about judgment in the future. The fire that he's speaking about, you're about to read with the action of this next angel. So when we see in Matthew six ten, it says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we're praying that god will carry out his judgment that he will restore order that prayer has never been answered never yet but there is a day coming when that prayer will be carried out his kingdom will come so let's look here at verse 5 and see what happens after then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And remember, this is on the earth. This is now shifting from heaven to earth. And somehow, this portal from heaven opens up. A window from God's realm to our realm. And the angel uses the exact same fire pan, the same sensor, and dips into the hot coals, and this time flings it across the universe to Earth. And it becomes a monster fireball. What we would think today, by the description that's here, to be an asteroid. Very specifically, one with great destruction. Look with me at verse 6, what it says. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Verse 7, the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass is burned up. It's the seventh plague that God carried out on the Egyptians in the book of Exodus when we studied a hailstorm, a hailstorm that was so powerful that it stripped all the vegetation from the surface of the ground. As a matter of fact, look up on the screen at this Exodus 9.18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail such as not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So we see, and archaeologically, do you remember when we looked at that and we were studying the book of Exodus. We saw archeologically that they have written in the hieroglyphics on the Pharaoh's tombs this great hailstorm that took place. God has done this in the past in which he has destroyed an area. This time, it's going to be upon the surface of the earth in such a way that's never happened before. And then he does something very specific. He takes out one third of the trees. Now think about this. One third Yosemite National Forest, the Amazon, the Congo. What do we need biologically to survive on this earth? Oxygen. One third of the grass, one third of the trees, all the green vegetation. The air's getting thin on this planet. It's very profound, isn't it? It's just sobering beyond belief. And that doesn't stop there. Look at verse 8. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Something like a great mountain. Now look very closely at that verse. It doesn't say it was a great mountain. I've seen some of these artists of end times things showing Mount Everest on fire being thrown across the universe. What he's saying is something like a great mountain. He didn't say it was a mountain. It fits the description that we know today of asteroids. And if you're keeping track, this is the second one. Something like a great mountain. What happens when an asteroid strikes the earth? I only have to take you back to 1908. In Siberia, an asteroid 200 feet across actually made it through the ionosphere, through the stratosphere, and by the time it impacted the ground, it was still 200 feet intact. What did it cause? A 1,000-foot crater. The wind force from the impact of that asteroid was so severe that it knocked down trees 20 miles away. The thunder from the earthquake of the Earth was so intense that people in Europe felt it and knew something happened. That's 200 feet across. NASA scientists believe that an asteroid as small as four kilometers would wipe out half the population of our Earth. John says this is something like a mountain on fire moving from the stratosphere to the ionosphere to the atmosphere where we live. And what happened as a result of it? a third of the sea became blood. First plague that God brought about against the Egyptians was what? Water turning into blood. Now whether this is supernatural and he turns it all to blood or it's a result of all the marine life dying, the third of the marine life dying, we don't know. But it says a third of the creatures in the sea and had life died. Can you imagine the stink? Ugh, How in the world would the nations deal with this? One-third of the ships are destroyed. Today, there are 30,966 licensed cargo ships on the surface of the earth. 10,000 of them wiped out from one giant tidal wave? One huge tsunami? Scripture says a third of the ships were destroyed. There has to be a force behind it. Verse 10, the third angel sounded and another asteroid, a great star, fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of the waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood and a third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. The ancients had a specific word for torch. The word is lampas, L-A-M-P-A-S. This word was usually associated with an astronomical event. Something like a torch being thrown across the sky. Let me show you how I know that specifically and that's what he's speaking of here. I'm going to show you, first of all, what he says when he's talking about a great star. So the first word that's used here is the word aster. Literally, a star from the base of strunami as strewn, something that's thrown out there. Now, aster, strunami, look at the next definition. Like a carpet, you ever shake a rug out and then cast it up on the floor? Or a carpet, that's what they're speaking of here. Something that covers. So they're talking about stars, aster, that strunomai across the sky. So John's saying, I saw this lampus, aster strunomai, where we get the word astronomy from, aster strunomai, moving across the atmosphere. I saw this great star. And what's the result of it? It apparently breaks apart as it comes into the atmosphere because it falls into the lakes and the rivers and the springs. This word wormwood is referring specifically to a tree in the Middle East that has a very bitter, bitter root. Who goes around tasting the roots of trees? I have no idea. But they associated this wormwood tree, this wormwood bush, with bitterness. Especially when it grew next to ponds, it would ruin the water. So John says, this star is called Wormwood because one-third of the fresh water supply of the earth is destroyed. Verse 12, the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. I find it very interesting that God did something specific on the fourth day of creation. Scripture says, on the fourth day, God made the sun and the moon and the stars. And he uses the fourth trumpet to pronounce this judgment. The very thing that God created and said, on the fourth day, it's good. It says evening and morning were the fourth day, and it was good. This very thing that God used to bless us, he now uses against creation. Jesus teaches that these are literal occurrences. Look with me on the screen at Luke 21, 25. There will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Jesus uses the word semino here, and the word semino means a mark. Like when you see the word mark of the beast in Revelation, it's the word semino. And this word that's being used here means for a sign, something supernatural that only God could do. Science cannot explain this so that a third of them would be darkened. The text seems to imply that God's going to reduce the intensity of light. Charles Ryrie says that he believes what this is indicating is that we're looking at a change from a 24-hour day to a 16-hour day. Don't know if he's right, but Jesus said the powers of heaven will be shaken in Matthew 24-29. Perhaps this is a partial eclipse that just keeps on going. It defies what science knows, and that's the point. God is omnipotent. He controls all of this. He created all of this. If he chooses to reduce the light, he chooses to reduce the light. But what kind of impact upon the botanical growth cycles? Grass and plants have to have the intake of ultraviolet light, we have to have sunshine. We have to have the moon to be able to see. This is true world climate change in a way that man has never experienced before. So verse 13 wraps it up. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, "Whoa, whoa!" Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So this amazing messenger appears. Is he one of the four creatures from before the throne, the one with the face of an eagle? No idea, but this is what he says. U'ai! 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 That word specifically is repeated today in the Middle East. This is a word of intense grief and it's always used in association with destruction as a matter of fact it's specific it's an poetic word and we have samples of that word in our language today if you say the word for instance buzz and you drag the z out because you're buzzing or you use the word murmur it's a it's a word that expresses a feeling so uai You see in the Middle East when individuals are killed in some of these massive bombings and you see women screaming on the sidewalk for the dead. This is the word they're using. Hawaii! Hawaii! That's what this eagle is crying out. Even weirder than an eagle can talk. I mean, come on, it is kind of strange, wouldn't you say? You've never seen this before. But he's interjecting grief. And why three times? because there's 3 more trumpets yet to sound and it's if he's saying you think this has been bad you wait till the next 3 look at how he says it uai uai to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and of the 3 angels who are about to sound this is a very graphic warning of what is about to come so these first 4 that you've seen this morning Are judgments against the surface of the earth, against the natural order. The next one coming is the release of demons from the abyss. And I I gotta tell you honestly, this stuff weighs me down. I've been studying this stuff for over a year, and each week it's just (sighs) grievous to look at what man has done to cause God to have to bring about these judgments. Why did God give us all this information? And what do you do with it? Why do we need to know all this material? I came up with four very specific reasons I want to give you this morning. Number one, it brings perspective to what's important. It causes those things that we think are so important in life to really minimize in value when we see what God has in store for his kingdom it really brings perspective to what's important. Number two, it serves as a warning for those who continue in sin, for those who reject God and chase away from him rather than to him. God's saying, pay attention. Will you look at me? That's why Jesus said these are signs. These are signs in the universe that you will understand. You have to turn towards God. The third one, it motivates us to share the truth. If you as a believer can sit through these teachings and understand what God's about to do and not be motivated to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you need to check your relationship with God because this should really stir your heart to say, I don't want my family or my friends to endure this. The fourth one, it assures us of God's ultimate victory. He wins. It's just so hard to get there. So here's my prayer for you, for myself, that we take this really hard material and translate it into a message of hope instead of a message of condemnation. Let's say, God has a way out of this. You don't have to endure this. His plan is such that you can dwell with him forever as opposed to facing his wrath. So, my friends, the next time you pray, our Father, Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Should mean something entirely different to you because you're asking for him to carry out these judgments. Yet Jesus commanded us to do it. Let's step into a time of prayer. Father, in this room are several hundred people who could turn the world upside down. You did it with only 12 disciples. I believe, Father, that every man, woman, child, student in this room can be a powerful witness for you. But what we need, Father, is that spirit of boldness. So I ask for my brothers and sisters, for myself, that you help us to take this information and translate it into action on behalf of the kingdom. Father, for our friends whom we'll encounter today and tomorrow and our family members who willingly would say they're not in a relationship with you and, and just not interested in being there. Help us, Father, not to speak judgmentally and not condemningly, but as graciously as you do, to point people to a relationship with you, but to be faithful to show them what waits. God, I ask for boldness for this congregation more than anything else, that we would be a bold, powerful witness for you. We have the information, Father. We've been equipped. So I ask that you just give us the courage to stand for you. And in those moments when our heart goes pitter-patter and we don't think we, we can do it, use your Holy Spirit to strengthen us. These truths, Father, we ask that you allow us to proclaim them loudly in the name of the one who redeemed us. Jesus Christ, our soon coming King. Amen.